Maybe you see it. Okay. Here it is. Is it blue and black or is it orange and ivory? If you don't know what I'm talking about, it has to do with this dress that literally almost crashed the internet on Friday. And it is really bizarre because as people look at it, they see it in very different ways. We had this discussion, I think it was Friday night, as Brennan brought the picture up on his cell phone and we passed it around and it was, who sees it as black and blue? And most of us did. And those of you that don't see it that way are going, I don't see it that way. Any black and blue. One of us, the oddball, I'm not going to mention his name, but uh, maybe it was Brennan. But anyway, he saw it as, as orange and ivory. And it's incredible. It, it is just amazing. Now, if you know the dress, you know that the dress actually originally is black and blue. But in this particular picture, and the way it was taken, and the way the pixels kind of work themselves out, people see it in very different ways. I can actually see it both ways. And sometimes I see it as sort of the the orange and ivory, and sometimes I see it as the black and blue. But it is amazing. How are these? Some of you are squinting to see. I can't see it. How does he see that? It's amazing how our perspective of this is different with each of us. They've been trying to explain it. I've seen and read a couple different articles. Some said it has to do with the, the shape of the rods inside your eye and how the light hits your eyes and uh, you will see it in certain ways. Some say it has to do with the way you focus and that some of us tend to focus more on the darker colors. Some of us tend to focus more on the lighter colors. But depending on all of that, you will see this dress in a different way. But yet there is a right answer. Because if you see the dress, and you see it in a a better view, you will see it's black and blue. Now, when it comes to a dress, it's just kind of funny. You know, and it's all over the internet right now. But when it comes to the word of God, sometimes we struggle in exactly the same way. We can look at something that is happening something that is taking place and come to understand it in some very different ways. This is the second week of Lent. And over the next five weeks, as we're in this Lenten process, I want to focus our attention, not on a dress, but on the last week of Christ's life, earthly life the last week of his ministry here on earth. To talk about the events that lead up to the cross. And as we look at it, we're on our way to the cross. We understand that Lent is about focusing our attention on the events of that Friday morning and afternoon when Jesus is hung upon the cross and he dies. And then there is Easter Sunday morning when we gather together to celebrate and rejoice in the fact that our Savior is resurrected. 
Our Savior lives. Our Savior is always there in our lives. And so I want to look at the Gospel of Matthew. And you understand that each of the Gospel writers had a little bit of a different focus of what they were trying to emphasize in talking about Christ. I loved that Joe spoke of John chapter 1. And one of the things you see in the Gospel of John is that focus upon the fact that Jesus is God. That he is God incarnate. And John comes back to that over and over again as you make your way through his gospel. Mark is very much speaking of Jesus as the servant. Luke speaks about his humanity. But Matthew, Matthew has a bit of a different focus. Matthew focuses upon Jesus as being, and he begins his gospel this way, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Two different promises fulfilled in Christ. He is the son of David who will reign in his, on his father's throne through all of eternity and is establishing his kingdom. But he's also the son of Abraham. So that the very end of of, of Matthew's gospel, he tells us to go into all the world and as we are going to make disciples in all of the world that is before us, not just the Jewish people. So we begin that process and we're going to look at five events that Matthew focuses upon. The first one we're going to look at this morning is his entrance into Jerusalem. Not so much a celebration as it was a declaration. And Jesus is living out, if you want, a parable. And in every action that he chooses, in every way that he is involved in those activities, on that Sunday morning, as he makes his way into Jerusalem, as he's leaving Bethany and goes through Bethphage and goes into Jerusalem, he is making a declaration, declaring himself, and making that declaration very clear in all the activities that go on. Then we're going to look at the cleansing of the temple and the cursing of the fig tree. Then after that, we're going to look at one of the most tender events that is recorded by Matthew. And that is the washing of Jesus' feet. The anointing of him before his death. Then we'll look at the Last Supper. And you find in the Last Supper one of the most amazing things. Jesus comes to his disciples and says, I am about to be arrested. I am about to die. I will be crucified. And I will be resurrected. And do you know what the disciples are doing? They're arguing about who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Talk about a wrong perspective. And then we look at, finally, the, day, the week, the Sunday before Easter. One of the most emotionally intense scenes, the book of Matthew. 
and that is Jesus in the garden. When he is praying to the Father and wrestling with what is before him. But this morning we want to look at that declaring entry as Jesus comes into Jerusalem. And one of the things you come to understand is that what Jesus is doing is he is revealing himself as our king. And he is saying to all those who hear that message, that requires a response. How are you handling the fact that Jesus is king? Back a decade ago, there was a large theological debate about making Christ Lord of your life. And as you say that, that in and of itself is a, is a wrong statement. I don't make Jesus Lord of my life. I don't make him king. He is. The question is just whether or not I recognize it and recognize its implications in my life. Now, when you come to Matthew chapter 21, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there. Matthew will over and over and over and over again tell us of the significance of this event and tell us that Jesus is coming and saying, I am king. What are you going to do about it? And the first thing you begin to realize as you read through Matthew's gospel, in fact, as you look at all of them, you begin to notice that there is a focus here. These events are revealed in a way that demands our attention. This isn't just one of those events. And one of the problems with looking at this entrance into Jerusalem is we are so familiar with it. We, we know the story. In Louisiana, on, on Palm Sunday, the, the, the children would get their palms and they would march around the church and I used to have to lead that procession. I just didn't like doing that. I, it was just too much for me. But they would walk around and I'd have my palms and they'd have their, you know, we'd, we'd walk around and we know the story and we know the events. But all of the gospels want us to say, this is important. Something is going on here that requires our attention. It's not just a fun little pageant on Palm Sunday. This is a theologically significant event for Israel and for us. Now you begin to notice that because of some of the ways that it's presented. First of all, this is one of those events that is recorded in all four Gospels. That's a rarity. Do you know communion is only recorded in three? John doesn't record it. I think part of the reason is that he, he understood the church knew about it. They, we understood it. John was writing later than the other three gospel writers. But this event is in all four. Every one of the gospel writers, just like the crucifixion, just like the resurrection, and just like the feeding of the 5,000, this event is found in every one of the gospel accounts. 
it's important. It's important because this event requires a response. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 19, which is Luke's account of what is taking place here. And he talks about Jesus entering, and the the Pharisees kind of get a little bit upset about it. Because they're crying out, Hosanna, which means God saved, which was not by this time so much a prayer as it was a declaration. The fact that God brings salvation to his people. And so they were crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna. And the Pharisees and those that were the religious leaders of the time, they understood exactly what was going on. And they understood the danger of what these people were saying as they were coming and gathering around Jesus. Last night, Cindy and I were watching the movie, Luther. And as we were watching the movie, and was speaking about the Reformation, and it was speaking about Luther and the stand that he was taking, and they did a great job in this particular movie showing the tension that existed between the, the, the religious and political leaders and Luther. Because the religious and political leaders knew that if the people accepted what Luther was saying, it would change everything. And they would lose their power. The Pharisees understood that. They understood that this was an incredibly significant event. And so in their upsetness in Luke chapter 19 and verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your your disciples. Tell them to stop. They can't be proclaiming this. They can't be saying this. And then notice what Luke says. He quotes Jesus and, and Jesus says, I tell you, if they keep quiet, this is so significant. Such an important event, the rocks will cry out and proclaim its importance. Wouldn't you love to see that? If you saw the movie Noah, you saw the rock creatures, you know, or Galaxy Quest. Can you imagine the rocks crying out? That would get my attention, I don't know about you. Jesus says that's how important this is that even the rocks would cry out if there was not a response, if there was not a reaction to what was going on. You think this is important? Matthew continues to call us to pay attention when he reminds us that this event is central to the whole focus of Matthew's gospel. Again, if you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 1. And as Matthew is introducing, and we talked about this just a few moments ago, as Matthew is introducing his gospel and telling us what it is that he is writing about, he says, a record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. In our small group we were talking on Sunday, how we often think of Christ as Jesus' last name. It's not. The idea of Christ there is the Messiah. The one who was anointed. The one who was promised and proclaimed. And so in that, Matthew wants us to know two primary truths about him. First of all, that he is the son of David. The one who is coming to reign. And that he is the son of Abraham. 
What you see taking place in Matthew chapter 21 is Matthew's account of the fact that Jesus is coming and saying to the people, I'm your king. I've arrived. I'm here. And in fact, it's so significant, we'll see in a few moments, that Matthew's whole gospel changes its direction in Matthew chapter 27 because of the response of the people to this event. No more is there talk about Jesus as king and his kingdom. Matthew begins to focus on Jesus as the savior of the world. It's significant in some other ways. These events are grouped together to emphasize the danger of the rejection of Jesus. There are three miracles that take place. Each one is saying, I am the one who came. What are you going to do about it? The first one is this, the entrance into Jerusalem. The second one will be the cleansing of the temple. When Jesus comes into the temple and he shows the zeal of the one who was sent by God for the house of God and he clears it out. He's saying to the Jewish people, the one who has promised has come. What are you going to do? And then another miracle that is a living parable. When he looks at a fig tree and there's no fruit on it, and he basically says, no fruit, you perish. And the next day when the disciples see that same fig tree, it's dead. Jesus is saying, I'm your king. And to reject that is incredibly dangerous. The three events mark that turning point in the Gospel of Matthew. When Jesus is no longer focused so much, and Matthew's account is not so focused on Jesus as the son of David. But suddenly the focus is upon Jesus as the son of Abraham the one who was given in sacrifice, the one who comes to be a blessing for the entire world. And then, these three events that we'll be looking at this week and next week, and this entrance into Jerusalem, is placed immediately before Jesus' most dire warning to those who would reject who he is. He says this to the religious leaders. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Remember the fig tree? He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard Jesus' parable, they knew he was talking about them. And they looked for a way to arrest him. But they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Jesus says because of a rejection of Jesus as king, there are consequences. 
Now, I want to be careful here because sometimes we get this idea that Christianity is all about the rules. And, and what Jesus is saying here is not you didn't do the rules. He's saying you didn't allow my life to produce its fruit in your life. That's not something that's a negative. That's joyous. Jesus was coming and saying, I offer you the kingdom. He came and said, my father longs to give you the kingdom in gladness and in rejoicing. To have Jesus as king is to have a benevolent leader in our lives who will lead us and guide us in the way of blessing, in the way of growth, in the way of wonder. Gracious and glorious and amazing thing to have Jesus as king. I didn't mean that rhyme, but it came out. It's not about the rules. It's about the kingdom. And this glorious, glorious, gracious gift that comes for those who recognize Jesus' kingship in their life. That idea of kingship is all the way through this event. And again, we are so accustomed to it. And we, we live 2,000 years away from when it happened. And, and so as a result, we, we don't see the significance. We, we don't know our Old Testament like those that were gathered around knew the Old Testament. We didn't experience Jesus' miracles as his disciples and those from Galilee who had gathered in for this feast had experienced him. And so the impact of it just isn't there. But for those that were a part of it, that those that were seeing the events, they understood that these events reveal that Jesus is the king. There are a number of ways that that Matthew reveals that. The kingship of Jesus is the primary theme of his entrance. How do I know that? Because Matthew quotes scripture and tells us that. In verse 4, he says, this took place to fulfill. All this was organized. And whether it was Jesus working a providential miracle in the fact that he just kind of knew what was going to happen and knew there would be a, a donkey and its colt there and, and knew to kind of move towards that and tell his disciples or whether Jesus had prearranged it. We don't know. But Matthew says this, this is why. And notice what he says. He says, say to the daughters of Zion, see, your king has come. He's here. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Matthew does something very interesting with the scripture here. He begins in Isaiah when he has that phrase there and says, say to the daughters of Zion, and it goes on to say, say to the daughters of Zion, see your savior comes, see his reward is with him, and he he will recompense, his recompense accompanies him. I'm sorry. But Matthew changes the direction. He begins there in Isaiah to draw attention. The daughters of Zion is Israel, it's Jerusalem. And then he suddenly leaves Isaiah and goes to Zechariah and quotes Zechariah 9.9 when he says, See, your king comes to you. The king is here. What are you going to do? Now, it wasn't the king they expected. In fact, as 
Matthew continues to write out of Zechariah. He leaves out the, the, the phrase that talks about the fact that he comes in righteousness and having salvation. And he focuses on the fact that here Jesus is seen as gentle and riding on a donkey. What they expected to see was this king coming in a war horse or a war chariot in order to turn over the Romans and destroy the Roman Empire and to bring out Jerusalem and to establish a kingdom like that. And that's what they're expecting. And that's what they're proclaiming. But Jesus is coming and saying, I've got a little different plan. We'll get there. But we'll get there in a different way than what you expect. Now, there will come a day when Jesus comes riding a war horse. That's at his second coming. That's the coming that Matthew will talk about in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. When he talks about when the Lord will return. But this king is coming. And it is the king of Israel. We understand that this is a king as we read through it. Because the cult reminds us of the coronation of Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 1 and verse 33. Where Solomon, as David is taking the, the kingdom and moving the kingdom from him in order to move it on to Solomon, his son. Solomon is led around and there's debate as to whether it should be a mule or a donkey or what the translation is in First Kings chapter 1. But it's that idea that when the king, the son of David comes, he comes on that colt being led around. A king not of warfare but of peace, humility. The coats bring to mind the coronation of Jehu. And as you go down and you read there in verse 6, the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. And a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the, on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And just as they did in Second Kings when Jehu was coming in for his coronation and there was a change of events, they would throw out their cloaks and king would ride over them. Would have brought that to mind. And the Hosannas. The declaration of the psalms that were sung during the Passover time of the coming of the promised one. But what is so interesting is what Matthew does. Notice the Hosannas that are sung there in verse 9. Hosanna Notice what, what automatically, right away, Matthew puts first. Hosanna to what? Son of David. The king who is coming. Matthew is saying, behold your king. He's here. He's Lord. And Matthew is going to ask the question, how are you going to respond? What are you going to do? The question is not whether or not Jesus is king of your life. He is. Joe made it very clear in what he spoke this morning. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the last phrase. 
and the Word was God. How are you going to respond? That's what Matthew draws us to when he says everyone must decide when they will accept his rule in their lives. It's not if. It's when. And whether or not we enjoy the incredible, gracious gift of following him. Or whether we struggle with the consequences of rejecting him. You see, there are those who reject his rule and seek to utterly eliminate him from their lives. Now, this isn't the most common response. But it is there. When there's an anger and a rage and a, and a, and a fury, at, how dare you, Lord, expect me to respond to you and be obedient to you? An inability to see the incredible grace that God offers by allowing the one who designed us and created us to show us the best way to live. There were those at the time of Jesus that did this. In Matthew chapter 26, as he finishes teaching about the coming of the kingdom, or in the middle of that actually, it says, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. And they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him. Destroy him. Find a way to completely eliminate his impact from their lives. We see it in our world today. Go to the Middle East. And those that would kill anyone who stand up and say Jesus is Lord. We see it in our country, our culture. Those that would mock and destroy and belittle and condemn any who would say, I choose to live my life in submission to my King Jesus. There are those that would destroy his influence. I want nothing to do with it. You see it in Hollywood. It breaks my heart when I see those that were raised in a Christian home, and some of them were abusive homes and terrible homes. But they simply seek to destroy the message of Christ out of their anger and rage and misunderstanding. But that's not the normal way people respond. I'm afraid the normal way people respond is what you see here in Matthew. For you see, as Jesus is doing this, as there's this incredible excitement, as as all the crowds are beginning to gather, and Jesus is making his way into Jerusalem and into into the temple, and, and he's coming through probably the sheep gate. As he makes his way in, and the crowds are there, and they're gathered together, They began to talk and say, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, 
Who is this? He came as the king. He came as a colt, riding on a colt. He came as one that they were proclaiming, Hosanna's son of David. But I want you to notice their response. The crowd answered, and this is probably those that were from Judea, not from those from Galilee. Ah, that's just Jesus, the prophet. From Nazareth, Galilee. Beloved, that's the way most of us respond to Jesus' rule in our lives. He's just many. One of many voices. And his rule is minimized. Just one of the voices that I can listen to. Just one of the prophets. I was a good teacher. He had some good things to say. You know, we get all caught up in this around Christmas time. Peace on earth, goodwill to men, and all of that kind of stuff. And, it, and it's sort of a civil religiosity. He's just kind of a good guy. You ought to listen to some of the things he says. He's just one of the prophets. The one that happens to be from Nazareth of Galilee. If Jesus is king of your life, you don't pick and choose. If you're willing to recognize him as king, if you understand the grace and the blessings he brings. The response isn't he's one of many voices. The response is he's my king. And such a good and benevolent, gracious king, I choose to live my life in such a way that what I do is what he desires me to do. Not out of force. Not out of pressure. Not out of guilt. Jesus didn't come to people and say, if you don't accept me, you're going to hell. Now that's truth. But Jesus came to people and said, are you hungry? Are you thirsty? Are you empty in your soul? Do you long to know forgiveness? Come to me. Allow me to be king of your life. You see, some, a few, understand his rule in their lives and follow him joyously. What I find so interesting is Paul never talks of Jesus as king because he was writing to Gentile audience. He uses a different word. It's the word kurios, Lord. Master. Same truth. As Paul I mean, was looking at his life, he says this, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. It's not, oh man, I need to do without, or oh man, I can't do that. It's look at what Christ has brought me. But whatever is to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing the Messiah, 
Jesus, my Lord, my King, my Master. What Matthew declares in Matthew chapter 21, what Paul declares in Philippians chapter 3, is we live our lives with an audience of one. And I seek all to do all to please him. Not so that he loves me, he already does. Not so that he accepts me, he already does. I do it in order to please him and that I might know the outpouring of his blessing upon the ones that rejoice and enjoy his reign in their lives. Paul says, for whose sake I have lost all things, and I consider them scubula, menorah. We'll say it nicely, that I may gain Christ. See, Jesus isn't coming and saying, Will you make me king? He's saying, I'm king. Will you respond? There's so many areas in our lives. Will you make me king of your life in the things you look at and watch? What you watch on computers and notebooks and television. Am I Lord of your life? How about on the way you do your business? The way you filled out your income tax or going to fill out your income tax? Jesus says, are you doing it in a way that reflects my lordship in your life? The way you love your family. Now, all of us fall short. All of us fail to be what the Lord calls us to be and wants us to be. That's the greatness of he's the son of Abraham. He brings blessing through the cross. He brings forgiveness to the, through the cross. He brings acceptance. And we begin that step of recognizing him as king of our lives when we accept him and what he did upon that cross and put our faith in Christ and what he accomplished. That's salvation. And then the rest of our lives is living out Jesus as Lord. For you see, the Bible is very clear. There is coming a time when everyone will understand his rule in their lives and bow before him. There's two ways that people will bow before Christ. One is those who are humble and choose to. Those who are believers and choose to walk in obedience to his will, his purposes. There are some who are humble. And then there are some, and we use the passive tense, who are humbled, who will be made to bow. And I don't care who you are. You will recognize Christ as King and Lord. The question is, when are you going to do it? Paul said it this way. At the name of Jesus, when he comes again, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Son of David, Messiah, 
but he's also son of Abraham, Lord of all. To the glory of God the Father. The question is not, is Jesus Lord of your life? The question is, how are you responding to that? It begins in salvation. That's how we recognize it. That's how we become humble before Christ and bow our knee and accept what he did on that cross for us. And then those who know Christ, is he king in all areas? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the message we find here. And we pray, Lord, that we might live it out in what we do. Father, we begin by accepting your Son as our Savior. And Lord, as we do each Sunday morning, we just ask that if there's someone here that is not certain of that relationship, is not certain that they have received the forgiveness that comes through your Son, that, Father, they would come and talk to me or someone else at how they might know that for certain. Father, for those of us who know your Son as our Savior, May we live out the reality of him as king in our lives for your glory, but also, Father, for our blessing in order that we might enjoy fully the grace and the gift that you've given to us. We ask it in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.